Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 264 of the Fun with Cars Formula One podcast, or episode 5 of 2020. It is the middle of October, and it is episode 5. Good Lord. My name is Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man whose new favorite number is 91, Chris Roche. Hey, Chris. Hey, Robin. Is that how long it took you to run your 10K? Ooh! Oh, it, was, it was 91 units of some time, I suppose. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about the month of September, and why not, a bit of October too. And that means once again we're going to cover four Grands Prix, Italy twice, Russia and Germany, and there's also some other news that uh, we're going to have to talk about. Nico Hulkeberg coming back, Pierre Gasly's crazy win in one of the two Italian races, and uh, there's also some bits about Nico and Sergio that need to be covered. And uh, I also wrote something for Auto Week. And finally, um, both uh, Goodwood and Petit Lamar are happening this weekend. And that's just my side of the list. I don't know what you have, Chris. I thought you wanted to talk about cream. <laughs> yes, my God. Okay. Clotted cream. What's the difference between clotting cream and whipping cream? It seems like they're awfully similar, which means clotted cream is very good. Don't get me wrong. Britain, I love clotted cream. The one or two times I've had it, I just don't understand why you changed the name. Why can't it just be whipped cream? Because uh, it's much heavier. It's not the whipping it, uh, obviously induces air to be uh, uh, introduced to the cream. So it's light and fluffy. Uh, clotted cream is anything but. It's not light. It's actually gravity defying. You try and get it off a spoon, I dare you. It won't come off. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that either the whipped cream that I, the homemade whipped cream that I've had has been made wrong, or the clotted cream you've had is way wrong. Because that does not sound. I mean, clotted cream is maybe a little bit thicker, but to me, it's degrees of separation, not you know, not not uh, light year, not big parts, not big separations. You know, what would you say? Uh, 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 a few degrees apart, not a you know, not magnitudes apart. Order think, of magnitudes. I, you apart. see, this is why I'll have to admit that, despite living in the United States for more or less twenty years, I've never had whatever it is you're talking about. I mean, I've seen <laughs> I've seen aerosol cream, which I've avoided like the plague, but I've never had much in the way of cream since I've been here. I, I reserve my cream needs when I return to the British Isles. Well, I guess, it, you know, maybe after you and I will have to get a pub crawl in first, but then maybe we'll do a cream <laughs> crawl <laughs> some other time. Um, in the meantime, I am opening a, a LaCroix or LaCroix or, you know, carbon water, carbon carbonated water, whatever you want to call right. it. That's what I'm having at this moment. Are you going to add some gin to that or something interesting? <laughs> yeah, I think there's an old fashioned in my future. And some gin, although my old-fashioned is kind of sacrilege, so it's probably not fair to call it an old-fashioned. Uh, we'll just call it a whiskey drink and uh, be done with it. Sounds good. Yes. So okay. anyway, Formula Where are we One. starting? Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, Monster? I, I think that uh, we had four really um, interesting Grand, Grand Prix to talk about. I absolutely loved Monza. I think that was my favorite of the bunch. Um, but I th we have to talk about the fact uh, that Lewis Hamilton equaled Michael Schumacher's 
at one point, seemingly insurpassable record race wins of 91 wins, tying that number with the season not even being over, let alone his career. Pretty incredible. Yeah, it's astonishing. I mean, I remember, you know, 30 Grand Prix seemed to like a lot. You know, if, if a driver had achieved that, it was... 30 uh, Grand Prix is a lot. I mean, it's it a huge is. number. That's true. I but mean, then, you know, the, the bar many just world champions have won less. Well, that's right. That's right. Didn't Alan Jones win the championship with one win? Yeah, and I think Jensen Button, you know, he's my go-to Brit. Uh, you know, his record is 10, you know, 12 or 15 wins in his career, and he's 2009 world champion. Yeah. You know, uh, Nico Rosberg, your favorite driver, he's... Um, <laughs> I think he's, I'm pretty sure he's under 30, uh, since that's the, R, the number you threw out. Let's double check his record. Well, with Nico, I see that as a surprisingly high number for him. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, I mean, how many did Jack win? Your man. Villeneuve? Yeah. Uh, well, the ones that count, none. <laughs> but he didn't win 30, did he? No. No, 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 uh, I don't think in, so. He's in the 20s, I think. Yeah, but, I mean, certainly when Schumacher got to 91 wins and seven world championships, no one, I think, thought it would ever be equaled. And uh, and here we are. It's 91 for Mr. Hamilton, and it looks like seven's inevitable. Um, it's, a, it's extraordinary. But, you know, he has had the best car for quite a while. Um, but I think, you know, some of his records that are more impressive, like Schumacher's, are being able to win every season they've been in Formula One, despite, yes. you know, whatever equipment they were handed. So that's what really marks those two out as, uh, you know, greats of the sport. Although Jackie Stewart would have us believe, and I can't say I totally disagree with him, that, you know, it's not just down to, to the stats, is it? it? You know, you can't. You can't just put those two and say they're better because they've won more than other drivers. It, it's a bit new, more nuanced than that. But I well, you'll notice I never once talked about who's better than the other. It's it's simply a matter of it's it's an incredible record to talk about, and there's a lot of there's a lot of push and pull to that record. Hamilton's had more chances to win that record because more races are in a season these days. Schumacher had more chances at that record because. He had um, better control over team and team orders. Uh, Hamilton's had a really fantastic car for much of his season. Schumacher has also had a really fantastic car for much of his season. So you could you can splice it several ways and pick apart who's truly the better driver, and some people have done that. But the fact of the matter is those two drivers have won uh, nearly 20% of all the Grand of all the Grands Prix that have ever been held. It's extraordinary. Yeah, so, amazing. I mean, do you think it'll? You think Hamilton's record, wherever it ends up, will ever be beaten? It's hard. It's hard to imagine because if if the sport goes the way that uh, that they're trying to, which is more competition, more level up, uh, you know, level playing field uh, between the ten teams, then you wouldn't have a period of domination like Mercedes have achieved again. In which case, who's gonna? He'd have to have an <laughs> exceptionally long career to try and get anywhere near it, wouldn't you? I, I, I think that's right, and I also think that uh, this is going to sound a bit fatalist, but um, you know, we're entering this 
very, very tumultuous phase in human history uh, where cars and car racing and all this kind of stuff is going through a big transitional period. So what will racing even look like in 20, 30 years' time is a bit of a question mark, to be just blunt about it. And so... We'll be racing something. We'll be racing (laughs) something. (laughs) It'll be racing something, but will it be comparable enough to say this computes to what Hamilton did or what Schumacher did or what or what Alan Prost did or what uh, you know Fangio did? And you know those types of considerations. And uh, by the way, Nico Hulkenberg won twenty three, twenty three wins. Hulkenberg in in Formula One. So. I think Nico Hulkenberg didn't win anything. Did I say Hulkenberg? <laughs> yeah. Nico Hulkenberg <laughs> deserves to win uh, 23, but uh, no, Nico Rosberg, yes. It's nice because it was uh, the most recent podcast. You were the one actually doing the swapping, so it's nice that... Uh, well, we're taking it turns. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so um, the, the, the person that I really want to talk about, ironically enough, is Nico Hulkenberg. You know, he's now been in three Grand Prix this season. And I was saying in the last podcast, you know, if he was given a little bit more time to prepare and you really get used (laughs) to the car, he'd be better in shape. So what does Racing Point do? They give him less time to prepare. They say, hey, pop on over uh, and qualify the car. My God. And he did. I mean, he was dead last, but he was dead last by a couple of tenths. And he, and he raced into the points again. What did he finish? Seventh or eighth? So eighth, yeah. I just this is the this is the German Grand Prix we're talking about, the Nurburgring, which is a, another topic I actually want to talk about. But um, the 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 racing point lineup for the German Grand Prix was Sergio Perez and Nico Hulkenberg. Two of the most highly rated drivers in the paddock, neither with a ride for next year. Wow, that's quite a statement, that is. If they were that highly rated, wouldn't they have a drive for next season? Uh, they're the highest, they're by they're far the highest, highest rated, rated drivers with a ride. <laughs> okay. so, All right, fair enough. I but, mean, I mean uh, look, Sergio <laughs> Perez is highly regarded. You're not going to argue with me there. I certainly hope not. No, they're both, I don't disagree with your your point at all they're, they're two really outstanding drivers and if there were more cars on the grid you would expect them to have a seat but uh, I mean what's fascinating about Perez is the guy carries around sacks of money as well doesn't he and he still can't get a drive so not only do you need a reasonable amount of talent and experience and lots of cash apparently you need a really rich dad or I don't know what it takes anymore yeah increasingly it feels that way the the cynical among us at least and but that that's that's what's craziest to me. I, seriously, think about this, okay? The Eiffel Grand Prix, as it was officially known, had um, the racing point lineup of Sergio Perez and Nico Hockenberg. Nico Hockenberg had effectively zero laps practice before qualifying that car, okay? Those two finished fourth and eighth in the Grand Prix. Do you think... Honest to God, do you think a Sebastian Vettel and Lance Stroll lineup would have done any better? I think I think you could make a really strong case that they would have done worse. Exactly. 
Exactly. exactly. I mean, Perez, Perez was fighting for the podium until the, the last safety car. And I think he was uh, a little hard done by. I mean, it was, it was shaping up to be a really good battle between those two, Daniel Ricciardo and, and uh, Sergio Perez for the last couple of laps. We I'm, I'm a little bit more on the crafty on Daniel Ricciardo and Renault's side a little bit more than I am Sergio got shafted, but hey, whatever. Yeah, I mean, you know, the point is, is that it wasn't just a, a fourth place that he lucked into, right? I mean, he, he was he was quick, he was on a good strategy, and it, uh, if a normal race had been run, he would have been battling for a podium. I mean, that's a pretty impressive drive, and as you said, I mean, Holkenberg, the car has probably changed a lot since Silverstone. He had no... Uh, no, no practice time at all. No setup time. Jumped in. Did a very credible performance. But this is the question: Is who would you, if you could play? Let's let's take out the the, the up and coming F two drivers for a second. We could talk about those separately. But who would you swap out for um, Perez and Hulkenberg? So who would you suggest should be should be booted from the current okay. lineup? Uh, this is you'll you'll be impressed by how easy this is for me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I would kick Vettel out and put Perez in that car, and I'd okay. kick Stroll out and put Hulkenberg in that car. <laughs> wow. A, All right. That's what I would do. I mean, look, Stroll is the sun, and Stroll shows pace inconsistently. Hulkenberg shows pace consistently. And, you know, Perez, you know, Perez is just, he's obviously, he's grown into be a very strong competitor really easy on tires, really good with working and maximizing the equipment he's got, and he's matured into a driver that uh, can race tough without banging into stuff. You know, Perez is, in a lot of ways, I'm curious to see how you're going to respond to this, Perez is, in a lot of ways, what Maldonado, Pastor Maldonado, could have been had he just been able to calm himself down a little bit. <laughs> Perez is what Maldonado tried to be. I wasn't expecting that name to come up, I will say. Well, I'll see. I, that's a, a, I mean, think about it. Because you know, Maldonado... When he was able to run cleanly and calmly, he was a race winner. He was, he, was, he, was, he was quick, and he always put in maximum effort. Perez, you get that, you get that as well without the banged-up carbon. So Okay, I mean, but... So those two are... Are done. So we know that there's some drivers. Uh, I mean, I, I, we could debate that a little bit more, but but they are signed for 21. Now there are some drivers that aren't. So if you look at the seats that are available, you could say that Giovinazzi is in trouble. You could say um, that uh, uh, the two has drivers are also in trouble. So Magnussen and Grosjean also look a little bit. I mean, Grosjean's talking about where he might go. So he obviously is not that optimistic. He's going to keep his seat. Yeah. Right, Kimi Kimi Raikkonen also, you know, having now surpassed Rubens Barrichello's most number of starts in Formula One, which is a tremendous record in itself, um, in its own right, uh, is another driver that could potentially decide to hang up. So, of those drivers, who do you think Perez and Hulkenberg could do a better job? Well, it's I'm so 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 happy you mentioned that um, because um, I really. I in my tweet I mentioned uh, in my tweet I mentioned uh, Haas because I'm thinking to myself, you know, Haas, you're sitting on a potentially very strong lineup here. If you just took 
took the Racing Point rejects, I'm being rude here, uh, just shock jock, a moment of shock jockism here. Um, if Haas took, if Haas took Perez and Hulkenberg, all of a sudden they could take that exact same car, get themselves into Q2 a lot more often, and score some points when they when you wouldn't think they deserve it. So that's really interesting because I don't I don't agree with that at all. So Grosjean finished ninth in in the Eiffel Grand Prix, and uh, Magnussen was what twelfth uh, or thirteenth. Now, I don't know if you watch uh, or go to F1.com much, but they have a really cool thing they put out a couple of days after the Grand Prix where they show the best of the onboard footage. And they have a top 10, and it's pretty good. And Magnussen features quite a lot this week. And his opening couple of laps, his opening couple of laps were top draw. I tell you what, you couldn't do any more with that car, no matter who you are. I, it's not it's not so much an anti Magnuson ploy that I'm saying as much as it is a pro Hulkenberg press. Grosjean is just he's another one. He's brilliantly quick but inconsistent. And uh, and I think with Grosjean you could you could get you could get more consistent from Perez and Hulkenberg than Grosjean pretty easily. With Magnuson, I just think Magnuson is just a little bit. He bangs up the car more than average, too. And that's, that's where I'm going, I suppose. And that's why I'd put Hulkenberg or Perez ahead of Magnussen. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd be unwise to swap both drivers. I think it's always good to keep one driver uh, as a reference and some continuity. So I think it would make sense for both teams, uh, Alfa Romeo and, and Haas, to retain one of their drivers and, and switch in somebody else. And... And it, I mean, it looks like it's going to be rookies, uh, which you could argue, you know, why not roll the dice? But I agree with you. It does seem very unfair on, on both, certainly Perez and, and Hulkenberg. I mean, Hulkenberg had a pretty good, you know, number of opportunities. He never was able to deliver a podium. So there has to be something in that, I think. He certainly showed plenty of speed and he certainly showed a lot of capability when he's come in, you know, in the few opportunities he's had this, this season. But... You know, it's hard. I think, you, you know, all 20 drivers on the grid deserve the spot. In fact, you could argue that 30 or 40 drivers around the world deserve a spot in Formula 1. There just aren't enough seats. Yeah. No, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that necessarily. Um, but since you're bringing up Formula 1, I, I went to Formula1.com today, and there's this brilliant little video with Raikkonen and Giovinazzi, Um uh, doing a lap in the Nurburgring, and it's brilliant because Raikkonen is just messing with Giovinazzi the entire time, and, <laughs> and just like oh, 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 dude, like he's just being an absolute, absolute child, and Giovinazzi is freaking out, and in the process, Giovinazzi is supposed to be asking Raikkonen questions, and uh, it's just brilliant fun because it was a chance to see Raikkonen not in the scope of media attention where he's very monotone and this is yeah. this and then short answers and all that so it's just a brilliant so uh and I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes because it's a lot of fun but it's it's a great little video but but just to finish that thought if you were to look at the drivers under real pressure i i would or, or ones that just seem to be perennially under underperforming so i would say that there's a couple of red bull racing drivers that are that are in the spotlight so 
Daniel Kafia is not doing anything particularly special in the uh, um, in the old STR, whatever they call themselves now. What are they? Uh, oh, Alpha the, Tory. the uh, Alpha, Alpha Tory. Tory. Yeah. And then, I mean, Albon. I mean, Albon, you know, is doing a Gasly, isn't he? I mean, really having a, a pretty torrid season. Uh, apart yeah, from the, but I, look, you yourself rated Albon quite highly last <laughs> season. You rated Gasly desperately poorly last yep, season. Absolutely. And you were starting to convince me somewhat, a little bit. Maybe it's that lovely accent of yours. But how much it is? How much of it is Albon, and how much of it is the way the team is structured? And with Daniel Kvyat. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not huge. I'm not a huge Kafiat fan. I'm not going to vie for him to my last breath or anything. It seems like he's been reasonable enough, but Gasly has been doing quite well. So, uh, and we clearly, we needed to talk about his win in Monza for mm-hmm. a little while. But, yeah, I, you know, I, I have a hard time blaming the drivers and more so the team structure there. They, they, there's something about that team that picks a favorite and really mentally, emotionally plays tricks on the second driver. It, it, I can't, I can't okay. put my finger on it, but something's there. So if Red Bull were to put Perez in the second seat, you don't think he'd do a better job than Albon? Because I think he would. I think there's a level of maturity and experience there that would make a difference. Now, he may not be as quick as Verstappen. I don't think many drivers are, but I think he'll be closer than half a second. I, I have a feeling that Perez would be quicker, yes. I think that Perez is the stronger driver than Albon is in general, certainly with experience. You know, whatever it is, how many ever seasons versus two or three for Albon. But I think Perez would quickly get frustrated there that... I think Perez, once he would be in the quicker car, would want to know why he isn't in positions to win Grand Prix and and why Verstappen is. And if he were in positions to win Grand Prix right away, then fine. But I don't think that's guaranteed. And just as you said, Verstappen is one of the quickest drivers out there, clearly. So I could see Perez getting frustrated in that playing mental tricks on him. I don't know. I mean, he hasn't... I mean, he's a pretty tricky situation at Racing Point, isn't he? Where he's running in a car that against a teammate who's, whose dad is is their, his boss. And, and he hasn't been... He's dealt with that situation, I think, very well. He's stayed calm. He's composed. He's done his job, right? Got the best... Tried to get the best out of the car he, he you know, he can. And, and he hasn't been complaining about the situation. So I don't know. I mean, I think that would be interesting to see one of those two more experienced drivers being put in a Red Bull to see if they could actually get more out of the car. I mean, look, Albon Albon was a revelation last season. He did a great job in the STR. He then got moved into Red Bull and was competitive. He did some really good races. He was as quick as Verstappen around, no less a track than Suzuka. But it's not gone his way this season for whatever reason and Christian Horn is saying it's a lot about the characteristics of the of the car and it doesn't suit his driving style but and they, they Red Bull are making seemingly efforts to try and make him more comfortable but you know you can't to me it, it's it's not good enough I think if he doesn't raise his game 
he's going to be in trouble for next season. And I don't think the answer is Gasly. And some people were calling for Gasly to go back into into Red Bull after his win at Monza, but no, that's absurd. You've got to. It's got to be somebody else. It's got to be someone from outside of the Red Bull driver pool. I think. I'm not certain Gasly would want to come back anyway. I mean, frankly, but uh, um, you know, he's got more wins. <laughs> he's got more wins in the AlphaTauri than he does in the Red Bull, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but yeah, no, I think I think your point is absolutely fair, uh, and I think that. Red Bull had that with um, with uh, Vettel and Mark Webber, where they had the young hot shoe and the established season veteran of sorts. And obviously, uh, Webber got frustrated, and I would say rightfully so, with some of those circumstances, but still won races, and he was still right there. So I'm not arguing with your point of Perez would do better than Albon or any other young rookie or near rookie would do. I'm just saying that team structure there just doesn't seem to be healthy for two drivers. Like if you compare the Red Bull structure versus the Mercedes structure, I think they're just totally different places in terms of equality and just how that place is run. It was pretty even in the Danny Rick days though, wasn't it? when he and Verstappen were together. I mean, they used to trip over each other on, on occasion, but uh, but generally they were both able to, to be competitive. So, um, I, but I know what you mean. They, it does seem like they seem to to lean towards one driver rather than than the, the pair of them. Yeah. Um, but you know, but, the, the, your point with uh, Ricciardo is totally fair. Um, anyway, and, and of course he got a podium in, in, in the Eiffel Grand Prix. Which yeah, was, and uh, apparently, apparently that means uh, Sybil needs to uh, get a tattoo. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, if that gets public at all. Um, but I really want to go back. I really want to go to Monza and mm-hmm. Pierre Gasly's win. Uh, that whole thing came about because of Lewis Hamilton's penalty for coming into the pits. When the pits were closed. Yeah, who knew that Formula One could close <laughs> close the pit lane? I didn't until then. <laughs> well, I know I, I I certainly remember over history them saying pit lanes closed, pit lanes open. I know that in iRacing, in simulator racing, the pit lanes can be closed. Uh, no, I did I did not I did not have fair memories of that happening often. But it's a rule that certainly they were aware of, and there were multiple. I mean, it was clear that there were markers that were sh- that showed that the pits were indeed closed when Hamilton went in. Seems like the team radio should have been pretty... Well, should have been pretty easy for them to tell them, hey, don't come in this lap. Yeah, well, apparently, I mean, it said on the timing screens that the pit lane was closed, but apparently that was on page three and Mercedes didn't catch it until it was too late. Ah, uh, well, yeah. Gotta, gotta, read, gotta read the front and back of the sheets, right? Well, I mean, no other team uh, other than Giovinazzi uh, fell foul of that, right? Everyone else saw that the, the, the lane was closed and stayed out. So, yeah, no, I mean, definitely Hamilton and Mercedes made a mistake. And, yeah, they needed to be penalized. I mean, it was a pretty hefty penalty, though, because obviously they, they stopped the race subsequent to that um, because of Charles's crash. And... 
And then they restarted it with Hamilton on pole position, but then he had to come in for his 10-second stop go. So he ended up at the back of the field by what? It was quite a lot, wasn't it? It was like 20-odd seconds, I think. Yeah, it was a healthy distance. Yeah, and I mean, his what was striking about that was the difference between his performance and Botas's. I mean, Botas had a really lamentable Grand Prix, and it's still not really been fully explained why he was so poor. But he finished, you know, fifth, and Hamilton finished um, eighth, seventh. I'm sorry, and Hamilton started at the back of the field yeah. with a penalty halfway through the Grand Prix or lap 20 odd and and so what on earth was wrong with Bottas I don't think anyone's really explained that really horrible Grand Prix for him but it sparked this just brilliant second half of the race Mm -hmm. where we saw an Alfa Touri and a McLaren and a racing point battling for the top three positions and we saw this immense, brilliant battle between Pierre Gasly and Carlos Sainz, and Gasly pulled off just this wonderful, emotional uh, victory. And it was just the kind of thing that you needed for the Monza podium, which is such a special thing, even without the crowd there. And there is a small part of me that really laments that Gasly didn't have the crowd, but even that you're still on that that just so very famous podium, and uh, it it to me I just really loved the novelty of that podium, the teams, the drivers, the fact that it was a first Grand Prix win for someone that had been promoted and then demoted and then kind of recovered from that to have. You know, such a strong result. I mean, to me, it was it was beautiful drama. I mean, I don't know about you, but I fully expected Carlos to win that race from from the restart um, because McLaren were very strong that weekend. I mean, he'd qualified um, third, right? So yeah, you know, yeah, it was yeah, the yeah. quick it was the quickest car on the grid for the restart that that wasn't facing a penalty. He got past Perez pretty quickly. And I thought, okay, so Gasly's done here. Saints is going to close on him and, and pass him. And to, to Pierre's uh, credit, you know, he he drove really, really well. I mean, to, to win your first Grand Prix, especially after his recent history, and to, to stay calm under the pressure, to, to be quick enough to keep him out of the DRS zone. And Saints never really had a good go at him. I mean, he never got close enough to have a lunge even. So really uh, composed drive from, from Pierre. And it's a Honda, and it's the most power-dependent track on the circuit. Yeah, I mean, Honda are no mugs anymore, are they? I mean, they, they've got a competitive engine this season. There's no doubt about that, which yes. is why I guess we'll have to talk about their decisions subsequently. Yeah. yeah, why they're pulling out, right. <laughs> yeah, it's just astonishing. But, I mean, you know, I think the other thing to say about Pierre, I mean, obviously there was fluky events that allowed him to, to get the win. He, he took his pit stop before the safety car so he was you know he'd already done his tire change uh, right. did, didn't have to pit so it all it all worked out brilliantly for him but you have to say that he I mean it looked like he was done at the end of last year 
um, you know, his career was over, but he has reinvented himself. He's been super competitive in the AlphaTauri all season. You know, he's been you know, uh, often in, in Q3, often in the points. Um, he's driven brilliantly this year in that car. He's completely overshadowed uh, Daniel Kafiat. And, you know, good on him. It, no, not many drivers would be able to bounce back from, from, that, from what he went through last season. And so, you know, the, the win just, just is the icing on the cake, I think. But he's done a tremendous job this, this year and, and shows he's fully deserving of a place in Formula One. Absolutely. Yeah, he's currently 10th in the championship, um, ahead, uh, ironically enough, of Carlos Sainz in 11th. And, uh, you know, that compares very favorably to Daniel Kvyat, who is 14th. The key difference is uh, Pierre Gasly has 53 points. Uh, Daniel Kvyat has 14 uh, you know, securing 25 points uh, at the Italian Grand Prix did not hurt. Uh, the other thing that these last few races really opened my eyes to, and this really happened uh, more than anywhere that at the Nürburgring, it was 9 degrees Celsius on race day uh, in the Eiffel Mountains, hence the Eiffel GP. That is 48 <laughs> degrees, that is 48 degrees Fahrenheit for us fine American folk. That is very cold for a Formula One car, and I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. Cars were breaking down because they were it's too cold. Um, you know, the engineers and a lot of team managers were wearing proper coats, and uh, tire temperature was an issue, but getting the tires up to temperature and uh, in good operating conditions, I loved this bigger variety in temperature that we've seen. And to me, this was a clear sign that Formula One should not be afraid of colder climate. That introduces a new level, another variable to work around. And I, and I, really, I really loved it. Yeah, I think that and the fact that there was no practice on Friday probably helped, right? So the teams had a day less to, to, to hone, the, hone their cars for the track because, and the conditions. Because it was rained out on Friday. Well, just fog, actually. The emergency helicopters couldn't... Uh, That's what... Okay, yes, yes. Yeah. But then they figured out a solution to that for Saturday in case th they were similar conditions. But, yeah, I mean, I think that there's... That it's not a bad track, is it, the ring? Uh, I didn't quite understand how the DRS worked because it seemed to me that uh, too many instances, if you made a legitimate pass in the first DRS zone into the chicane... You then got mugged for the second DRS. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah, there was poor, a old, of poor old Russell. I don't know if it wasn't very well captured if you just watched the normal race footage, but Russell pulls off a wonderful pass on Vettel into the chicane. But then, of course, Vettel gets DRS because Russell's ahead of him after the chicane, so he's able to get back past him. And then, of course, Kimi then hits Russell, taking him out of the Grand Prix. But what that showed was that the Williams is now able to compete with the Ferrari, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. No, well, at least with Russell behind the wheel, yeah. And, and, and only with Vettel, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I 100% agree with you there, and I, I definitely noticed that. And I thought it was really fascinating because there were a couple pieces that it's nice to be at a classic old-school track, and I said, hang on, the, the Nürburgring was one of the early... New tracks. That was one of the shameful, we can't go to the classics anymore tracks. 
Yeah. And obviously the starkest among them because the classic track is actually still attached and still used for the Nürburgring 24-hour race uh, and uh, the VLM series and all this. So VLED, excuse me. And um, I know I, V and L is one hugely long German word, but the N is Nürburgring. So that part is uh, member, easy enough to remember. But uh, uh, so when, when that track first came about, the, the Nürburgring Grand Prix track, people shunned it like, uh, it's so sterilized and stuff like that. Now they come back, they hadn't been there since 2013, and now they're saying, oh, it's so nice to be at a classic track again. And I'm thinking to myself, man, isn't that something how times have changed? Well, I think, I'm it hearing helped, that. I think it helped that it was straight off to Sochi, right? Which is a very <laughs> yes. modern track, and it was, it was very dull. But the best news, while you bring that subject up, is the greatest thing I heard since the ring is that they're the, the crazy owners of the Nürburgring. I mean, these are people who try to turn it into a theme park. Uh, the remnants can still be viewed around the, the, the Oh, track. yeah. You can see the roller coaster. Yeah. But these, these guys now want to reintroduce the Nordschliefer to Formula One. They what? have plans. Yeah, they, they talked to Hermann Tilke about how much it would cost to bring the Nordschliefer up to spec and they're serious about it and apparently it'll cost about a hundred million dollars and would, I'm surprised it's not more than that to be honest and well I don't think they want to they don't want to turn it into a tilkadrome they would just want to you know get the worst the worst aspects of the circuit maybe move the the, the, the armco barrier more than you know two inches off the edge of the track well but I think the curbing would have to be changed um, well, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But but they're serious, apparently. And the idea is that this would become like an Olympic Grand Prix event. So it wouldn't be hosted every year, maybe every two or three years. They would get half a million spectators there. And it would become like a real special Grand Prix. And when, when you think about it, of course, you know, we've done a lot to improve safety with the tracks. But now the cars are so much safer, um, potentially. And, and the modern marshalling and, and equipment that can be deployed at tracks maybe allow you to reconsider you know how to manage a 13 14 mile long track and, and make it a reality again and that would be epic wouldn't don't you think if they could bring modern formula one cars back to the to the nordschliefer i do i do i i ultimately think it's it's fantasy <laughs> i think you're right but it's a great <laughs> fantasy it's a, it's a fantastic but i mean i remember Gosh, I don't know how long ago it was, but several years ago now, Nick Heidfeld drove a modern Formula One car. Yeah, BMW, the I think Ring. it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I rem you know, obviously he wasn't pushing, but I remember he didn't, he couldn't do the carousel, for example. the The car was too low and the carousel too bumpy, and um, he couldn't get on those curbs at all, and. I just there's so many aspects where the car was actually not uh, not built for the Nurburgring, so it was actually not able to really show its true self. You know, to be honest, I would much rather see I would much rather see uh, cars like uh, the 919. You know how they did the uh, Porsche 919, uh, which is the 24 Hours of Le Mans, the WEC car. Um, how they did the 919 Evo with more horsepower and and different um, different aero and stuff like that, and they did what a five and a half minute lap around uh, uh, the, that track, which yeah. is insane. To see. The video is just incredible. 
And I think an endurance race with that level car would actually be more fun to watch than a Formula One race. I, uh, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, I think... Well, yeah, but you like clotted cream. Well, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, you could reprofile a few of the corners. The, 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 the cars could have to be properly set up for the track. What You know, if, if it's bumpy, well, you have to set the car up for bumps, right? And then to see F1 cars race around that track would be epic. It'd be absolutely great. I mean, it's like a road. It's like a normal road. It's like an A road in England. Or, uh, you know, a back road here in the States. I mean, to see F1 cars have to try and... It's barely wide enough for two F1 cars in places. Um, oh, would be yeah, just I know. Tremendous. I've, got, I've got six laps around that track to my name. I yeah. know it. Yeah, yeah I've I, done three. Yep. I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. It is seriously uh, one of the craziest, best places to be behind the wheel. Absolutely. Um, but... Uh, no, you're right. I'm being, I'm being, yeah, no, you're right. It would be amazing to see. It, it, I, but I, I don't think it's going to happen. No, I'm, I don't I'm still think it is. <laughs> don't, don't burst my bubble imagining it. <laughs> yes. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's a brilliant place. It's, it's a brilliant, unique, wonderful place in the world. And it's the type of thing that I can't imagine anyone being able to recreate it. I know that there's, like, I know both Honda and Toyota have, have highly regard the Nürburgring and have like shorter versions of it at test facilities in Japan oh, um, you know GM, with proving ground stuff like here that. at Milford I think yeah they they call it um, it's uh, slang term for it is the Lutz ring um, for <laughs> uh, Bob Lutz who was mm-hmm. uh, who championed it when it was built uh, you know whatever it was 10 years ago now mm-hmm. 15 years ago even uh, yeah and uh, but you know honestly I I would be even happier to see um, Formula One, speaking of that, come to... I would love to see Formula One race uh, Laguna Seca. I would love to see Formula One race Road America. I would love to see Formula One race Road Atlanta. You know, I think there'd be some really fantastic racing at some of our tracks. Well, there's there's rumors of it coming back to Indy, right? Now it's owned by Roger Penske. Yeah, that's not quite the same, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, so classic tracks. I mean, Mugello, um, first time F1 went there, and it looks like an, an absolutely epic circuit, and the, the, you know all the drivers loved it. Absolutely. It was really fascinating how uh, where the start-finish line was in relation to the, to the straight and how that played a role in starts and restarts and... All the yeah. crazy things that happened there, but uh, yeah, I, what was your biggest takeaway from that one? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was fascinating. We three full standing starts in a Grand Prix. That's a first for me, I think. <laughs> that was uh, amazing. That and just we had happening. and we had a safety car start. Um, you know, and I mean, obviously there was the carnage at the at the first restart, which was pretty hairy. But fortunately, all the drivers got away with it um i mean it looked like a classic you know the midfield thought the race was on and and went for it and good old botas was trundling along in third gear <laughs> so well, and and the and the midfield had no reason not to think that the race was on <laughs> right i mean it was a logical response everyone started accelerating so off they went but uh yeah i mean 
it was there was some pretty good action into turn one. I mean, there was some good overtaking into turn one. Uh, you had the the Botas Hamilton battle, um, one getting over on top of the other at each start, um, and then you know obviously we had Max with the power unit failure, who had a tremendous start in the first actually the, the proper start of the Grand Prix, and then the Honda let him down, which was a shame because I think he would have had a feisty race otherwise. Um, yeah, agree. But yeah, I mean, I did. It was very curious that they kept electing. I mean, I was particularly frustrated because I. I, I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm a clo- you know, not really a closet Williams fan. I am a Williams fan, you know. And <laughs> there, there was Russell running a strong ninth, um, and he was basically undone by a couple of things. One, they did the final full standing restart, and. Uh, he didn't get away well, which, you know, could have been down to him, could have been down to the car, but obviously that's on him. But the other problem was is how they allowed um, two of the drivers, which was Raikkonen and Grosjean, to do a warm-up lap. Nobody else did a warm-up lap, but those two guys were allowed to unlap themselves. Yes, And, and yes, so they yes, were already yes. in warm tyres, and both of them shot off the grid and made multiple places from the start. That was terrible. So poor old Russell got bumped out of the points and he just couldn't he, he couldn't he didn't have the pace to take Vettel although he was you know I mean he was keeping Vettel honest but uh, yeah so he finished 11th which was gutting um, and then of course Albon got a podium with a great outside pass on Ricardo at turn one which was one of Albon's highlights from those the four Grand Prix recovering but the rest has been pretty poor yeah 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 no that's uh, those are all fair points um, oh, one, so other, one other thing sorry I just saw my note what about Lewis's bravery? Um, so you pull up for the restart. I think this was the first restart. His brakes look like they're on fire. Yeah. <laughs> and yet he went deep and on it into turn one to make the pass on Botas. I mean, that is some you know, confidence in your equipment, right? If I'm looking at my car and the brakes appear to be on fire, I'm probably not going to go deep on them you know, for the next quarter. So well, it- you know, maybe it was blissful ignorance, but uh, yeah, listen, I mean, Hamilton, Hamilton, you know, just touching back to our original topic, 91 wins, you know, he's, he obviously had um, brilliant speed from the off. You know, he had a fantastic uh, GP2 season in 2006, jumped into Formula One racing and was a Grand Prix winner. I think it was his fifth race in it was Canadian Grand Prix of 2007. Uh, I remember this well because I, I, my very first uh, Grand Prix that I went to was a U.S. Grand Prix in 2007, which was his second win. Um, but uh, and that was at in, in, at the Indianapolis, by the way. He's grown into just just very mature, dedicated, quick, has a really good understanding of equipment, and still aggressive. I mean, he's just he's in this prime to operate at a level that just you know clearly. Everyone else is struggling to match, and that's just a really good example of that, I think. Yeah, I mean, he certainly had one over Valtteri at that Grand Prix, didn't he? And he had, uh, you know, they had, they then had a subsequent reversal where Hamilton was on pole for the final restart, and Valtteri was in in the presumably pref- prefer- preferred second place and couldn't get it done. Hamilton managed yeah. to, to hold him off. So, yeah, I mean. We, I, I don't want to go on too much about him. I think his record speaks for himself. But uh, but yeah, that was an impressive Grand Prix, especially with the brakes. I mean, the Mercedes do seem to get a lot of temperature in their brakes. It's not the only Grand Prix we've seen where <laughs> smoke's billowing off their 
front axle. So it's I, I don't know if it's the da, the the DAS system or what they're doing to warm up their their brakes, but nobody else on the grid's doing it. Yeah, that's all true. So um, now we have to get to the saddest news of this yeah. podcast, which mm -hmm. is of course Honda making a decision uh, to leave Formula One again. Um, and I, it's frustrating because it was like, man, you were just starting to get on a roll there, Honda. And uh, you had a chance to really, really compete um, once the 2022 regs came around. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but we're good. And I think, I think what we're seeing is a bit of the reality of um, the climate crisis combined with the pandemic and the economy uh, the economic shifts that the pandemic's causing that has piled up on Honda to the point where they have to make financial decisions like that one. Because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, Honda is not anywhere near as big of a company as Mercedes-Benz or obviously not in the sport, but Toyota or Renault. And uh, so they don't have the economies of scale that the biggest automotive brands do. Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, I don't know about you, and I might be giving away a lot of money here, but now I think I'm going to place a big bet on Red Bull running an unbadged Honda engine, winning the world championship in 2022. Ooh! <laughs> <laughs> Just like 2009, right? On that one, yes. <laughs> so, so the rumor is because Red Bull are in a bit of a pickle now because. Yeah. You know, they got no engine. Mercedes doesn't want to back them. Obviously, right. Ferrari doesn't want to back them. And they don't want to go back to Renault. So what are they going to do? So the, the theory is that they may buy the IP from Honda or some license agreement and and basically run it as a Red Bull, um, you know, car and uh, chassis and engine. Right, and, right. It's a Tag Heuer engine or whatever. Exactly. And so, yeah. you know, just like... I think even Honda used to do this back, it was Mugen, right? They used to run Honda engines as uh, Mugens back in the yep, day. Yep, yep, yep. So that could, that that would make a lot of sense that the Honda have already committed to a new engine for next season. So there's no reason why it wouldn't be competitive in 2022. So why not, uh, why not Max winning the championship in a non-Honda badged Honda engine car? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's ironic though, isn't it? that they'd win the championship and they wouldn't get the marketing from it after well, all the money they put in. Have we ever seen that happen before? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jensen Button in a BAR Honda yes. slash. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I mean, it. so the, the, the logic behind their pullout, so Renault actually made an interesting comment. So essentially, if you're an engine supplier but not a team, then you have this enormous cost to develop competitive engines but you don't really get the marketing benefit from it because nobody really cares who's supplying the engine, right? It, they, they take notice of the driver, they take some notice of the of the team, and then the engine supplier is far too far down the order that most people don't really pay too much attention other than Anorex like ourselves. So you don't get as much exposure, you don't get any share in the F1 revenues, and you don't really have a lot of political influence either. Mm. So it's a bit of a duff role to be a, a powertrain supplier these days and so that's why Renault came back in Honda you know clearly think with you know the, the shift in environmental concerns and electrification that it doesn't suit their needs so but I mean I, I can imagine that they're 
their powertrains will still be in the sport in some capacity after 21. Oh, that's fascinating. And I imagine that the gin is just going to taste mighty fine. <laughs> so perhaps, perhaps that's the solution. Red Bull should bring Jensen Button back to partner Max Verstappen at 22 to win his second title. <laughs> Love it. Yes. Now, now, now you've got my attention. Um, so, but let's talk about some better, happier, at least to me, news. Stefano Domenicali. It is actually bittersweet because I actually got the chance to meet him a couple of times uh, as his role as the chairman of Lamborghini, the uh, you know CEO of Lamborghini, in my day job role of uh, having fun in some fun cars. But you have to. I I thought he was a good team principal at Ferrari, and I think that he's. A smart man. I think he's passionate about racing, and I think he's going to make a great president of uh, Formula One. Yeah, I mean, he's a good guy, Stefano, and and uh, and I think you know he's been un- universally uh, praised. The decision has been universally praised to bring him back into the sport as the CEO of F1, and of course Chase will still be around in some capacity too. And as I think, you know, we have to touch on the job that Kerry has performed he's been a, a tremendous boss of Formula 1 the last couple of years and got through a lot of tricky situations and is leaving it in, in a very good situation for Stefano t- to pick up um, especially considering all the things he had to deal with mm-hmm. uh, first the people understanding that this is now you know Formula 1 is now an American company in in in, in in, in legal terms, at the very least, and Chase is it in fact an American? And is he really? In all the all the oh yeah, that's a very American mustache, sir. <laughs> uh, and and all the uh, and all the burniness that ha- that was clouding over him. <laughs> and then uh, and then you know having to find solutions around a world pandemic, you know he's he's had a lot to deal with, absolutely. And you have to give him praise for what he's done. I completely agree with you. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, not not just the pandemic, but he had to deal with a new Concord agreement, keep the teams in line. He's introduced, yes. a, you know, a salary uh, uh, cost cap, which who would have ever thought that would ever be introduced in the sport? So, no, he did a lot of good things. Um, but what fascinates me, if you now look at, uh, so you got Jean Todd running the FIA, you got Ross Braun, who is uh, essentially running the technical regulations for Formula One. And now you've got Stefano Domenicali as the CEO of F1. They're all ex-Ferrari people. Oh, man. That's true. Oh, my gosh. That's so... I did not... Ha! Wow. And the joke that, used to be that FIA stood for Ferrari International Assistance back in the day yep, because yep. the rules were always sort of... Yep. <laughs> yes. Supportive of Ferrari's bind whatever they happened to be going through. This was before the domination of the early noughties, so... Yeah, it's. It, but to be fair to them, I don't think they've shown any bias, and I don't expect any. Once Stefano is in, uh, you know, in his new role, but it is fascinating. And it's not. It's not exactly. It wasn't exactly the the calmest and loveliest of exits for Stefano from Ferrari. <laughs> so. No, it was a unceremonious dumping out of the sport. But there wasn't you go. Wasn't it though? Yeah, I mean, you know, that was. I mean, Stefano Domenicali. Uh, being shown the door was kind of the the 
as he was shown the door, uh, the Ferrari gods, as they are, installed a revolving door for Team Principal. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, that was the beginning of all that, you know. So, yeah, yeah. it's... It's uh, but no, I I, I I think it's a good move, and I, I'm I'm happy for the sport that I hope he can carry forward and 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 continue prosperous times for Formula One into the future. Yeah. So other other news related items, we've got um, we've got the fact that there's now uh, an anti dilution fund. So if you want to enter Formula One before 26, you have to pony up two billion dollars. <laughs> In addition to you know finding an engine, building a chassis, setting up a Formula One team. you just got to give the other teams 200 million. So, yeah, I don't see any new teams coming in anytime soon. That was an interesting God. move. Wow. Um, I don't understand that, but okay. I think, I think the initiative was to help prop up the existing teams during this tricky time. You know, you've clearly got a couple of them, you know, notably Williams and McLaren, both struggling financially. I mean, McLaren just had to well, sell their, and, sell their and building. Haas, actually, Haas is, uh, Haas too, is that they're... That's right. So, you know, there's, yeah. there's a number of them that are struggling. Uh, obviously, they all want to get to the... I mean, the, the point is, is that what the cost cap is 145 mil, and the reality is that there are a number of teams, probably about half of them, that don't even spend that now. So even with the cost cap introduced, you know, they'd have to find some extra budget from somewhere to be able to get up to that limit. Um, so, yeah, that, that was an interesting point. And then the other thing, there's been a lot of debate, especially in light of the exciting Monza Grand Prix, as to whether or not we should introduce reverse grid qualifying races. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so we wouldn't have a, a traditional quali. We would have a sprint race, and the starting grid would be determined by your championship position and I have to say it's been universally panned as an idea by pretty much all the drivers and most of the team principals that I've heard from and, and I, I'm God not a fan of that. it yeah absolutely it's, it's, it's such I mean that's that's the type of thing you do I mean that's that's t-ball man that's not like, that's that's so that's child's play to me you well, know, it's British I, touring car. I mean, that's what they do in, the, in quite a lot of lower formula racing, right? They introduce weight equalization, reverse grids. I don't like uh, weight equalization either. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not Formula One, and it has no place in Formula One. Absolutely. And I mean, I mean, come on. I, okay. This, I, <laughs> is it British touring car a little bit like T-ball? I mean, it is. <laughs> It's actually quite entertaining, but uh, yeah, it's, no it's not the most serious it's quite level. Entertaining, of, yeah. But it, it's just—it's ludicrous, you know. A, a good friend of mine, um, a good friend of mine, um, his name's Rob Holland. He's—he's a—he's a veteran British touring car driver. Uh, he's an American, but he's done a ton of racing in Europe, and he, you know, he's taught. It's a—it's a crazy place, and those are those are really good, highly regarded drivers. I am not. Uh, I'm not attacking that at all. I'm just saying that uh, it's 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 just a bit. It's just one extra degree of craziness that's thrown into it, and you know, so you can be a little bit sillier with those types of things. But yeah. if you're trying to like truly garner true champions, true performance, all this kind of stuff, you know, I, you know, we're already in a massive gray area with DRS, let alone something like reverse grids, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Formula One, it should be about the best team, best driver winning. And, and yes, unfortunately, sometimes it leads to periods of domination and it can be frustrating. But you still want to see it's all about who's the best, who's the fastest. It's not who managed the reverse grid race the best. That's certainly exactly. not what it's about. Exactly right. And when it comes about on its own, and naturally, when you have these like odd penalties and you get wins like Pierre Gasly, they're brilliant. But if that's manufactured, it would not have the same feeling not even close right and and so yeah i just don't like it um and i do i just want to uh i, I want to end on one one final note going back to the beginning um i remember when uh schumacher when um when lewis hamilton surpassed schumacher's uh pole pole record pole position record and i believe it was Schumacher's wife that came and had a little statement saying, hey, you know, records are meant to be broken and we congratulate you. And then when when um, Hamilton equaled Schumacher's race win, the fact that Mick was there with one of Schumacher's helmets, I thought that was a really nice, really touching moment. And I, I really appreciated that. And I was just curious to hear your thoughts. No, I thought it was... Uh it, it's weird how this sport works, isn't it? That Schumacher, uh, Schumacher's record should be equaled in Germany, in the in the Nürburgring. No and kidding. Yeah. On the weekend where his son was supposed to have his first drive in a in an F1 car in FP1, unfortunately he didn't get to do it. So Mick should have been driving in FP1 in the uh, Alfa Romeo, and um, Ilot was supposed to be in the Haas, and it didn't happen. But yeah, I thought that was a, a lovely moment. I mean, I think we all. I think Martin Brundle mentioned this on the comms. You know, it was sad that Michael couldn't be there, of course, and he reminds us all of the, the terrible tragedy that befell him after he hung up his helmet. But, yeah, it was a lovely moment, and you could see that, that Hamilton really was touched by it. The fact that he kept staring at the helmet, took it, took it up on the podium with him, and, uh, and that, that, I thought, was very cool. Apparently, Hamilton and Schumacher traded helmets back in 2012. Um, and uh, this is when Michael was still obviously racing for Mercedes at yes. the end of his career. So, but yeah, it, no, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. You know, Michael, Michael has an interesting history in the sport. Uh, you know, he, he did, did a few things that were sort of, I guess, a professional foul, you might term it. But, um, um, you know, ultimately... He set the standard. He he redefined the standard for Formula One drivers during his career, and and had yeah. he, you know, on his day was unbelievably quick and completely unbeatable. There's no doubt about that. And uh, you know, it, it it is amazing that Mick Mick will soon be in the sport racing Hamilton. <laughs> Hamilton raced his dad. I mean, that's pretty amazing how it's yeah. it's all unfolding. Yeah, exactly, and it just shows these touch points in different careers. As you know, you know, there's starting to be discussions of uh, all sorts of kinds of second generation people getting into the sport. It's just fascinating to see how Lewis Hamilton is in that point of his career where the very beginning of it is with some people as they end the career, and the very towards the end of his career, he's starting to race those people's children. It's just kind of an amazing thing, you know. 
Uh, I don't know if Yoss Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton ever overlapped. I think Yoss was out before Yoss the boss was out. Before I think he was, yeah. yeah he but was. it wasn't by a big barge. But well, Yoss uh, raced into the mid-90s, I think. So I, th- I thought I thought he I thought he was I thought he had a couple of races in the in 21st century. I could have sworn he did. Oh, maybe you're right, but I, I still remember Yoss when he was in the uh, in the Benetton when it when it blew up on him in the pit lane. Those yes. incredible images when we used to have refueling. So that that would have been 95, I think, or 90, 94. But yeah, but no, nope, 2003 in a minority. Oh, there you go. Wow, so. he, he lasted longer than I thought. Yes, and that is my dog suggesting that it is time to wrap up. And I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave, um, please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. Chris, hey, man, five in a year. That's That's got to be a record. <laughs> yep, we'll soon be at 91. Wow. <laughs> your favorite number. Always great to talk to you, Chris. Go feed your family. And uh, go and enjoy that old-fashioned. Oh, thank you, sir. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye.